This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tomahome. And I'm David Stifle, that Burroughs guy from www.marsbooks.libsyn.com. All right. Fantastic. You're welcome. Thank you. Yes. You're good at that. (laughs) (laughs) I've said it a few times. (laughs) And it's great that you're here because today we're going to talk about (laughs) A Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs, the first of his Martian novels. You got it. Yes. One of the first novels he wrote, right? Actually, this is the first novel he wrote that was published. He Uh wrote a number of things, but they tended to be family books, stories for his kids. He was a real misfit, and he wandered around trying to figure out what he was going to do in life. And he had any number of odd jobs. And at various times early in his life, he would, he was all, he was a great cartoonist Hmm. and he was, as we know, a great writer, but early in his life, the only stuff he wrote was, was uh, little stories for his kids. uh, And he would write them up and hand them out as gifts. And uh, in 1911, and this is, somewhat folklore, I think, but uh, there's got to be some truth in it. He would often say he was banging around broke, trying to figure out what am I going to do next, and he was reading a Pulp Fiction magazine, and he said to himself, this is rot. I can write rot as bad as this. (laughs) And in less than three months, he sat down and he banged out what became a princess of Mars at the end of 1911. Wow. And submitted that to All Story magazine and got it accepted. So was this and, uh was this a really popular story or did he hit his home run with Tarzan and and then everybody kind of rediscovered this one? Well, it seems to me that this was actually it was it's almost a different world, the different world the world between Tarzan and Mars. Mm-hmm. This thing was so outlandish. And so out there for 1911. I mean, just stop and imagine. We uh, Orville and Wilbur had just recently done their thing at Kitty Hawk. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, World War One and mechanized warfare was still just in someone's imagination. No one really understood what that was all about. Uh, mass communications. This was a very, very different world from what we've got. He's up there on Mars running around with different races and flying around in these things that repulse gravity. And, and some of his uh, inventions are awesome. But the thing was so outlandish that when he submitted it to All Story, he said the name of the author was a guy named Normal... Bean. Nor- yeah, Norman Bean. Not Norman. Normal? Normal. Normal. Oh, really? Almost an, like an expression, like uh, like uh, cool dude or something. <laughs> something. And in 1911, it just meant this guy's not crazy. This is, a, you know, he's completely okay. He's a His normal bean. bean. His bean is normal. He's That's great. right. Brain. Now, when All Story printed it, some editors said, oh, that's got to be a misprint. There's nobody named Normal. We're gonna, his name is Norman Bean. <laughs> so the first story got printed under the byline of uh, Under the Moons of Mars, it was known as, by Norman Bean. Now, as a funny thing, once 
the misprint became clear. Burroughs just said, oh, screw it, I give up. Um, my name is Edgar Rice Burroughs. And from then on, that became his pen name. Now, when Allstory printed Gods of Mars, his second book, under his real name, Edgar Rice Burroughs, he actually got mail back from a fan saying, I think you changed the author between this first story and second <laughs> story because I could tell that it's a different person without as much skill. And bring, bring back Norman Bean. <laughs> so this was, yes, it was his first novel. Um, I mean, he just kind of sat down and just all this flowed out of him. I, there, the, you know, there, there wasn't time for him to overthink it. But the man had great storytelling ability. He was obviously a raconteur. He'd had great experiences in life. But... Um, yeah, and not all, and so it got printed in in all story, and almost simultaneously, in less than a year, he had also invented Tarzan and gotten that printed, and then uh, Gods of Mars just followed straight on its heels. Once he found that he could make money doing this, he was a workaholic and he was a very shrewd businessman. So he just took that ball and ran with it. Hmm. Uh, within the first two years of his writing career, he created the Mars series, he created Tarzan, and he created the Inner World, the Pellucidar series. Just in in less than a year, oh wow, he had written those three. One or maybe two years, perhaps, but a very brief period of time. So, yes, the Mars series was his first. Uh, obviously, in the back of his head, the, the, the stuff that would have generated into Tarzan had to be percolating because it came swift on the heels of Mars. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, that um, I just looked up War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells was published in 1898. So, uh, right. So, Wells was kind of a contemporary then. Um, Absolutely. He mm -hmm. would have been the cutting edge that uh, that Ed may have heard of. He may not have. He was kind of a – he was not a stupid man, but he was not a highbrow. There's a story later in his life that he had this real <laughs> inferiority complex that he was just a hack. Well, he, he kind of – he got hoist on his own petard. He was writing rot in his own <laughs> mind, and he made a good living writing rot. But uh, he really, after a while, really wanted himself to be considered a serious author. And so there were periods later in his life with one of his wives when they were at some nightclub and she ran into Ernest Hemingway and started gushing all over him. And he really got, got on his high horse and said, well, if you like him so much, maybe you better go home with him instead mm -hmm. of with me. So uh, he, it was an interesting uh, thing because he was one of the most popular authors of, of American fiction, but he really had this feeling that he hadn't gotten into the upper tier, and he kind of was jealous about that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, when I was reading it this time, I was noticing um, there is some scientific stuff in here that um, was probably you know, known back then. And, you know, so he was doing research. Um, here's just a little passage. It says, as I was to learn, the Martian nights are extremely cold. And as there is yes. practically no twilight or dawn, the changes in temperature are sudden and most uncomfortable, as are the transitions from brilliant daylight to darkness. That's so, right. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot of uh, scientific thinking that went into this. Oh, he's oh got, sure. He's got the moons, right? Yeah. He's yes. Done. The two moons at the at the and, different rotation, and they move rotations. very fast. You know that that was something that was interesting too. Yeah, right, it, I, it's it's surprising uh, it, because it is it's real. I don't think it's a science fiction book at all, but it it does have sort of a uh, science basis underneath all the sort of fan, uh, fantastic elements, right? Um, right. 
very not uh, some of his later stuff uh he really got into more of the gadgetry and and uh, the outlandish inventions the one that really comes to mind as far as that one goes is mastermind of mars where he really uh prefigured uh, organ transplants brain transplants uh that one gets really interesting um I uh, since I've been going through all of them, it's hard for me sometimes to remember what came out of where. But I believe that in the first one, he does talk about the flyers based on the Barsoomian ray of repulsion. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know in this one. I don't think he has the autopilot. Maybe he has the uh, the uh, uh, auto compass that keeps you uh, always pointing in the same direction. I think later on in Thuvia, Carthoris, his son, invi- invents an autopilot. But uh, uh, in the first one, we – oh, yeah, and we have the radium rifles with the radium bullets yeah. that uh, explode upon exposure to light. Yeah. But, no, the science is pretty primitive here, obviously. Yeah. Everything's radium-powered. <laughs> right, right. Mitch, and, if uh, you look in the, in the back of those old magazines, you know, that's the face cream that you put on. You put oh, on yeah. this, this – uh, r- uh, put on radium face cream and it makes your skin glow oh, oh yeah well, I, I, it'll make your skin fall off if you put up too much you got well i remember the radium watch dials when i was growing up mm-hmm. that you know that was a big thing you know glow in the dark radium dials mm-hmm. but um, yeah we have that we have the radium guns we have uh, the 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 whole notion of flight which as i say the um, uh, wright brothers had just done what they did what 1903 only eight years before so a lot of his air uh uh, technology is a lot closer to Zeppelin technology than actually uh, powered uh, heavier than air flight. Uh, he talks about uh, the buoyancy tanks of of uh, the big f- uh, flyers and whatever, and I, it, it just struck me that that really mirrors what was happening with uh, with Zeppelins at the time. It's it's also uh, called the Navy, right? And he the, right, the it wasn't an airport. It was a navy. Yeah. Right, right. It was, which made uh, perfect sense to him because uh, ships and the ships of the air, they would still be considered navy. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's no seas on Mars, so any any time you get up in a big, big ship, it's got to be a, uh, in the air. Right, right. And the, and the fleets of 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 all the craft. So uh, it 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 was an interesting time because uh, he prefigured some stuff and some, uh, of course, he he uh, missed uh, missed uh, by a little bit. We should probably tell everybody uh, who you are a little more than just your website, because basically what you're doing is you're taking all the the Burroughs Mars novels and reading them and releasing them for free as as kind of audio books. Right, exactly. They are uh, audio. It, it's a podcast, but it's a uh, it's serialized audio books. Uh, um, I'm uh, going through the public domain Burroughs. That's the first five Mars books, and once we hit six, then that was 1928, and that's still owned by the Burroughs estate. But the first five books uh, I am uh, going to uh, slash have already recorded and made available at uh, the podcast site, which is marsbooks.libsyn.com. I was telling Tam about, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's a LibriVox version already out there, but it's read by multiple people, and and there's a Tantor has a copy, but actually I, I was like, no, I'm enjoying the, I'm enjoying your your one the best of all the ones that are out there. So, um, you just happen to be a talented narrator, or do you have some uh, 
some previous skill that you're bringing to the table. Well, the previous skill is I am a professional actor. I started uh, doing, I've been acting since I was 13 years old, and this is uh, another outlet for it. Uh, This was, as I said, uh, I got into uh, Burroughs in 1963, and that's an interesting story, too, and I still haven't found all the pieces to it. But essentially what had happened is, again, this was one of the most popular American authors of the 20th century. But by 1960 in America, pretty much everything of his was out of print. Grosset and Dunlop uh, had the licenses to do the reprints, but about all that they were printing at that time were some of the early Tarzan books. Stuff like the Venus series, the Pellucidar series, Mars series, you just couldn't get your hands on that in this country. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but somehow in the early 60s, the copyrights to all the Burroughs works lapsed. And there was a big feeding frenzy in this country because the paperback companies jumped on it. Yeah, they were Uh, looking for something to feed the monster that was the paperback industry then. You got it. And these were public domain, didn't have to pay royalties. And what happened is it uh, turned into a war between Ballantyne and Ace. And literally, just it seemed like overnight, all of a sudden, on the news racks, and they came in like comic books in those days. You'd go to the local drugstore or supermarkets, not so much. The local drugstore where you got your comic books in those days. And the new paperbacks would show up on the racks. And all of a sudden, all this stuff was coming out. Uh, Princess of Mars and then uh, Thuvia of Mars. Actually, Ballantine came out first with Princess of Mars and somehow Ace jumped ahead and figured, well, we're not going to compete on on titles. So they jumped ahead and started with Thuvia. So Ballantyne came out with the first three. Ace did four, five, six, and seven. And Ballantyne overleaped them and did number eight. Uh, Ace did a whole. Uh, Ace went over tour. Uh, did some of the Tarzan. Did the v- Venus, and then Ballantine seemed to divvy up and 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 uh, went over and did the Tarzan books. But there was a real feeding frenzy going on. And I remember, but I don't have a copy nowadays. But there was one Ballantine, and I think it was in the Tarzans at the back. It would say something like, "This is an authorized edition, approved by the Edgar Rice Burroughs Estate. People who respect authors, living or dead, will buy." Only only the Ballantine authorized editions and no other. Yeah, they did that with Tolkien as well. That's uh, right. Tolkien, Tolkien's, uh, uh, through some strange loophole, became briefly kind of public domain in, in the U.S. And, and there was an unauthorized edition and an quote-unquote authorized edition that made you feel guilty if you had previously purchased uh, the other book. <laughs> and I think that, again, was the breakdown between Ace and Ballantine, yeah, as I recall. Right. The, the Ace was the unauthorized one, and then Ballantine actually went through and, and at least got permission and probably paid some royalties. So, yeah, that is very interesting, and that was about the same time. <laughs> Nevertheless, later they did renew the copyrights, and that's why we're now under the current copyright law. So the first five books that go up through... Uh, 1923 are fair game. Everything after that is not. Hmm. It, it really did um, allow allow something that had really been dead since the hardcovers, though, right? To exactly. Come back. And and since then, it. I mean, I, it's strange that I never managed to read this book prior because I've I've heard about it and I've seen people reading it, and for just some reason, I just never picked it up before. Yeah, but, I, went, I went through a big Burroughs phase. Um, I, rem- I clearly remember the first one I ever read was called The Lost Continent, 
and that was an ace ah, paperback. It's a Pellucidar, right? No, it was actually a standalone. No. Yeah, oh. that was a standalone, right? Yeah, and right. Uh, I clearly remember finding that in the in the library and reading that, and then and then I read the, all the Mars ones and uh, a lot of the Tarzan ones and the Pellucidar series. I remember a Tarzan novel that was a crossover with Pellucidar. Yes, Tarzan at the Earth's core. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, yeah, right. I, re- I read a lot of them. But the Mars series, I, I had all of them from Del Rey. Those uh, Del really Rey. nice covers. Gorgeous covers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. right, So right. I'm not those, sure when that, those came out. Sometime in the 70s, I think. Th- uh, that sounds like 70s. Anyway, mm-hmm. but bouncing back, just to finish an earlier question, that uh, that uh, it was during the 60s and that great Burroughs resurgence that once I bought, uh, they, they were like popcorn. You read one, you got to read them all. And that's when I became an avid, loving fan of Burroughs. Actually, I had started when I was 11 because my mother had the first 10 Tarzan books uh in hardback from Grosset wow. and Dunlop, and uh, uh, as I uh, on my side, I actually said that one afternoon it was raining and I complained about being bored. So she went to her bookshelf and says, "Read this," and she handed me Tarzan of the Apes, and I read that at eleven. So that would have been 1961. So I was, and I would open, and there would be on the front page saying, "Author of the famous Mars books." And I would say, oh, that really sounds cool. And then, of course, you can't find those Mars books. So when they finally came out in 63, I ate them all up and, and just loved them and uh, kept them. And and um, then years later, when I was casting about trying to find a project uh, for myself to do as an actor, and uh, audio books are um, a growing field, and I figured, well, I'd like to do some work in that field so i'll i'll do one uh, it's always you know i figure why you know if you're going to do it do it and uh, i knew it was going to be a huge time investment and i told myself well in that case if it's especially because it's going to be for free it better be something i love and i go through my library and i come across my old burroughs books i says hey this is public domain i did love this let's go back and take a look at it and and uh, sure enough i uh discovered that the love was still there and the material was still rich enough that that's where I chose to uh, do the podcast on. And that's how that's how I got to be the podcaster. And then as I am doing this, I figured I want to become the expert. And I read the Irwin Porges uh, biography of Burroughs, which is excellent, is out of print, but you can find it used at Amazon. And I started reading that and I said, well, I'm going to become the authority. I want to become that Burroughs guy. And that's <laughs> How it's uh, that's how it's developed. <laughs> it's a it's uh, it's pretty impressive because there there are a lo- there are a lot of websites about Burroughs online. But um, I, I've just uh, I I got an email from you I guess a month or two ago was that mm-hmm. yeah and uh, and then just out of nowhere somebody had you had made all of these uh, audiobooks already. I I I, I always think I, I know the entire internet when it comes to my narrow field, which is. Uh, science fiction and audiobooks and and you just came out of nowhere surprising surprising well that's that's the beauty of the internet right it, now is you, one can do that so uh uh yeah i'm i i'm very well i know i'm a damn good actor i know i love burrows and this stuff is just tailor-made f- to go to town this one you don't 
underplay and you don't go subtle uh at least in my in my universe this is swords and sorcery it's rip roaring it's larger than life and it's a hundred years old so there's a bit of, of of style to it so some of my shakespearean chops are coming into play here because his language is very rich and there's a real rhythm to it it's not the and iambic pentameter but some of the stuff does roll off the tongue rather magnificently so uh, having the acting chops and being classically trained with verse and all that, that's all helped. And then, of course, I'm a ham. And so secretly, and this is kind of something I'm going to be adding to my podcast as maybe a contest. So secretly, I've been uh, taking some of my favorite actors from the uh, black and white film period of Universal or even after. And uh, some of the um, characters get cast with impressions <laughs> of some of those other great <laughs> actors. Uh, oh, cool. uh, in um, in this one, who is the uh, who is the guy with the uh, the nine faceted uh, the nine faceted diamond or whatever it is on on his chest? He, oh, Sator Throg. Right. Yes. Uh, who who's that? Who who oh, did you cast God. as that? My God. he's got a voice. Yes, he does. That one I will have to say is a personal friend of mine. Ah. Uh-huh. He's a personal friend. So sometimes I grab known personalities, and sometimes I'll steal from an unknown. I'm, I'm shameless. <laughs> well, uh, that, then I can't be expected to have guessed him unless he's no, a famous no, no, no. actor from the, from the film industry that I, I haven't yeah. seen. And, and the point is not, I'm, I'm, I'm not playing Sammy Davis Jr. or Frank Gorsh. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to do impressions. It's just some of these, some actors just give me a real flavor of where I want to go with it. Uh, uh, Princess, I was still learning the ropes, feeling my way. So uh, I can tell you pretty clearly Tars Tarkas is a James Earl Jones-based voice. Uh-huh. Like, uh, um... Uh, Darth Vader, that one kind of me to me was a no brainer. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the ri- yeah, I, I'm trying to remember some of the other characters. Yeah, Sator Throg was was a quick. Yeah, he was actually number two, and I was starting to to branch out and and really characterize a lot more there. Uh, the first novel, though, most of the major characters are. Uh, there's not an awful lot of characterization. I didn't go overboard there on that and. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, there's, not that many, there's not that many characters. There's there really aren't. I mean, uh, we can go on, uh, go a little later and go over them, but we have Tars Tarkas is probably one of the main ones. And yeah, yeah that one very much came out of, uh, I Cantos definitely Cantos Can and Sarkoja. Right. Sarkoja. Yeah. yeah. And Sola. And Sola, <laughs> yes. Who actually, yeah. she, she becomes a stock character. She shows up in all, well, two of the three. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was thinking about the way the story is constructed. It feels sort of um, familiar, you know. I guess we've seen it in other things since then. But one of the one we've got, we've got our main character. He's the hero, right? And Correct. He's, and then he's got his girl, Dejah Thoris. Mm-hmm. And then there's the uh, enemy who's not an enemy, uh, sort of Tars Tarkas. And right. then he's got his dog. <laughs> I have, we have Wula. Horses, right? We have Wula. You betcha. And, and, and his thoughts. And then, he, yeah, and all his thoughts. And then, um, and then we've got the plot in which uh, he has to rescue the girl, uh, escape from capture, uh, become a gladiator, and save the planet. <laughs> That's it. It's got yeah. everything, right? 
He says, all in a day's work. (laughs) Well, it strikes me, actually, and as I was reading it, I thought it was going to be a problem, and I I almost uh, started off the podcast apologizing for it. But it's an interesting thing that the thing begins as a Western. Mm -hmm. The first two chapters, you think you've stumbled into a Zane Grey novel. Mm -hmm. Except that the guy goes into a cave and he's overcome with something and he becomes paralyzed. That usually doesn't happen in Zane Grey. But it's in Arizona. He's chased by Indians. And this was very, very much a part of Burroughs' life. He had spent time in the cavalry in Arizona. And uh, he had uh, worked out in Idaho around the turn of the century. So uh, uh, Cowboys and Indians was still a very fresh memory for a lot of those people. And I suddenly realized as I was reading it uh, out loud that all he really did is he translated a Western and just put it onto Mars and colored the uh, Indians differently. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because the Indians are sort of green, right? And mm -hmm. then they're sort of red. And then you say, well, what's what's with the... You know, the, the four forearms, are those the Indians? Are the red men the Indians? Are they the white men? It's kind of hard to... It's. It, I don't think you can put it in one li- little neat box, but certainly... Oh, not at all. There's, not at there's all. even elements of, like, uh, at the beginning, he's talking about uh, how everybody thought he was such a good slave master. All his slaves thought he was great <laughs> before right, the war. Right, right, right. right. All of his slaves loved him. They yeah. worshipped the ground they, he walked on, I think. Yes, good says, Captain right? Carter. He was, right. he was the loving master. Oh, so kind. And then when he gets to Mars, he has the same thing happen, right? I think Solos ends up uh, saying, you're the greatest man ever, and I'll be your slave forever. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Right, and later we meet Thuvia. Yeah, he has great slaves. Yeah, and he was really good with his animals, too. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, How do you make them do all these wonderful things? Just give them a little treat. Mm -hmm. That (laughs) is a very strong thread for Burroughs in all of his works. He loved animals. And just about every one of his books, he would make some comment about how animals were really a lot better than human beings. And cruelty to animals, just, oh, that did not set with him at all. But his whole note, and he had spent so much time uh, on the ranches of Idaho. He was a horseman. He uh, reportedly loved horses. But that's a, that, if there is any theme that you would find in Burroughs, that would be one of his major ones, was love of animals and nature, the unspoiled. Well, I think there's also another one that, um, that's hidden. And that's it's hidden because it's distant from us, but it's become so clear now, right? So one of the things that uh, if you go to the ERB Zine website, where you can find millions of you know scans of you know the images and stuff, is there's a, a complete adaptation uh, as a comic um, that somebody has hand drawn, and you know it's amateur, uh, but he's done a panel by panel, uh, basically the entire first novel. Wow! And what's shocking about it is, is of course everybody's completely nude. Yes, right? and yeah, we sort of know that in the book. I mean, it's really, it's really quite present that he, yes, he, but we don't see you know, and and her breasts were very large. Yes, and, and her yes. areola was no, but in the comic, the guy who had done it, he's like, he's he is not uh, going for modesty. He's going for the reverse of whatever. I, I don't know showmanship, uh-huh. um, uh, ex- and it's, ex- it's ex- shocking. Ex- it's it's like hard. It's almost hard to read. It's so shocking. Ah, uh, I bet. Not, 
not just not just the the men and the women, but animals. All they, oh, everything's they, naked. Everything's naked, and yeah, and you can tell when somebody's excited and is like, "Wow, this is surprising." Um, so <laughs> yeah. there is there is an element of, of nudism and nudity that's yeah. happening that is, I guess, suppressed by the way the story is told. John Carter isn't obsessed with describing people's naked bodies, although he's he's well. Well, happy to tell us about somebody's uh, being well muscled, right? Oh, right. He's always glad to talk about being magnificent physical specimens, right? Of, of and, whatever. You know, giving us a sort of a general outline, uh, but right, but not focusing on the details. And um, so that that's one one of the elements that, I mean, it is kind of strange if you think about it. Everybody on Mars doesn't wear clothes except they're naked. Yeah, they're they're, they're, they're nude naked, except for their harnesses and jewels or you know status right. symbol uh, equi- equipment that designates their status and holds their swords and <laughs> such. That's it. That's uh, it. Well, it's funny. Well, and and do remember that uh, Pulp Fiction at that time there was a certain amount of uh, of, of uh, nastiness about it. Uh, you know, uh, it was the kind of thing that if you had a Victorian grandmother, you didn't let her know you were reading that vile filth. Well, so uh, there was a, there was the prurient uh, uh, bit of the fact that in 1911 he's talking about these babes wandering around naked and the men wandering around naked. So that would have been it would seem to me. Part of the appeal, uh, and uh, part, of also, the, part of what I don't think it's—I don't think it's just—I don't think it's just uh, that he was going for the market. I think it's also something he was interested in. I mean, Tarzan, oh, sure. Tarzan is also—I mean, he's a guy. You know, we get the loincloth. That's it. Yes, right? yes. Well, he he had grown up in in America of that turn of the century. But you got to remember, Teddy Roosevelt was very much into the physical fitness and bully and. And uh, that was part of being a, a mensch, a man, was uh, physical development back, uh, you know, yeah, 100 and there, years ago. There, there was also a movement uh, called physical culture, right? Ah, yes, which, yeah. Which began in the late 19th century and, and developed into what we now call, you know, P.E. and gyms and all the things that that uh, we now take to, for granted as you know, people working out and building up their abs and all those Millions of things that uh, you know we sort of don't even notice. The physical culture became uh, something that we just now think of fitness, right? Being fit. Exactly. But before exactly. the before the nineteenth century movement started, there was no you know nobody was you know in the seventeenth century nobody saying hey got nice pecs there you've been working out <laughs> nobody would su- even suggest that. Right? Not at all. They Not wouldn't even all. consider yeah. that as something to do. Yeah. Well, for for Burroughs, that you know, it was part of the uh, manly man and being a self-reliant, strong, strapping American, and uh, and uh, with uh, certainly with a very strong military background to him. Uh, the the yeah, uh, physical strength was a very important trait for him. And uh, um, if you had a, a beautiful body, let's not be ashamed of it. Uh, that, right. that you know, the natural—that is something that, uh, again, is as you say, that's one of his major themes that cuts through just about all of the works. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's also kind of funny. We talked, uh, Tam and I, we talked about uh, Robert E. Howard and um, uh, how he wrote his Conan stories. And uh, I don't know if it's Tam, but somebody suggested, you know, is this homo homoeroticism? And I. <laughs> I, I don't think it is. I don't think that this is homoeroticism. But I also think that there is something strange in that we've got uh, writers, right? A guy whose job it is to sit at a typewriter all day, or uh, 
pen and paper all day <laughs> and writing about doing physical activity all day, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, sort of a contradiction there. But, of course, the main character in this story, he has had time to sit back uh, back on Earth and write out his adventures. He's all That's right. in first person, which means sort of he's not, he's not doing it, you know, third person. He's doing it, these, this is what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Burroughs had a lot of life experience before that, didn't he? Like Absolutely. And so on. Uh, he, had, he had banged around trying all sorts of jobs. He was a wonderful businessman, as his writing later showed off. He, he turned this into an amazing business. Uh, but um, he had been a jack-of-all-trades. He was a mis- well, he, he was a writer. He was Edgar Rice Burroughs, and he was living... Uh, he was very, very conservative. He was very uh, right-wing, very put-your-nose-to-the-grindstone, work very hard for what you want. Uh, you got to have a good head for business. Um, and so he was an extremely gifted artist with a, with a very good business streak. And he was a misfit for so long because he, he tried to sell dry goods. He tried to, be, to run a ranch. He tried this. He tried that. But his great gift was storytelling. And it took him a while to uh, finally discover that that's how he could make his living. So once he actually was sitting down just banging out words on a typewriter, his experience had been a lot of physical labor. Uh, he, as I say, he'd been in the military. Uh, he was in the cavalry. He'd been to military academies. He uh, had worked on ranches. He wasn't afraid of hard work. His idea of a good trip was to get a, uh, a Model T Ford in 1911 and go trailing up into the hills where you'd have to push the car uphill halfway to up to the top of the mountain. He didn't mind that. He that he relished that. He loved taking trips and camping out. He loved nature. And I think a lot of that comes from his time in Idaho on ranches and uh, in the cavalry in Arizona. He was a uh, uh, he he was an environmentalist of the first rate, although at that time uh, the ecology movement hadn't really taken off. But he was much like Teddy Roosevelt. He he didn't see any need to preserve stuff because he didn't see the danger. But he loved nature and, um, you know, give him a city any day. A lot of that comes through a lot stronger in Tarzan. But if, you can see it in, in the fact that Mars is a dying planet. It's not, a, it's not Coruscant, which is... Uh, all developed and civilized. There's a lot of wild places, and that's where the adventure is. So, yeah, you can see a, a, a very active, physically man uh, now writing, and but sublimating through his writing and still getting out and playing a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the Martians, you know, seem, you know, back to nature quite a bit, but at the same uh-huh. time, they've got like this giant uh, atmosphere plant. That's uh, right. kind of scientific. So yes. it's you know back to nature and forward kind of at the same time. Right, right. But have, uh, no, only only like one guy on the planet knows the the password to get into the yeah, the yeah. atmosphere generator. It's it is it, it it sort of presages a lot of the um the the stuff that actually, uh, Tam, you were talking about doing red nails. You know, I'm talking about uh, Robert E. Howard's red nails. That's actually. You know, there is this idea that cultures collapse, and then we have the civilization uh, that lives in the bones of that culture, and that's kind of what's going on on Mars, right? Right. There was an ancient civilization on Mars that had complete control over every everything, and that's sort of gone down, and 
the leftovers are in in uh, that 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 plant. But uh, what's the name? What's the name? I keep forgetting his name. The guy in the 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 Martian atmosphere plant. What's that? what's his uh, name? We again? never get his name. Uh, no. Uh, I, I don't recall that we get a name in the first one. Uh, I, I thought. Uh, uh, maybe not. <laughs> Probably in not. the atmosphere plant. Yeah, but he I does think... have. He does have a. Uh, that's the guy with the the faceted. That guy. Ah, oh, yes, actually, that yeah. guy. Yeah, he doesn't have a name, but uh, actually, yes, that was based on some actor. Actually, that was based on Max von Sydow. Max von oh. Sydow. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, uh, uh, he's wearing that, that, uh, it has nine facets. Yes. The, seven, the, the, the seven colors that we recognize. And then there's two extra colors. And then two extra vibratory rays. Right. One of which is, is the ray of repulsion. And I got to remember what the other one is. And I, I, I mean, thinking about it, that makes no sense. Cause there, there can't be extra colors because we've got the entire spectrum mapped out. But I was thinking, well, Maybe if we, you know, remember that John Carter's from, you know, the early uh, or late 19th century, right? He's not a regular uh, guy from the late 20th century or early 21st century. He wouldn't mm-hmm. know or be able to tell us that actually it's not rays of light. It's, it's uh, you know, electromagnetic spectrum. So it could be right. rays or it could be, mind you, I don't know how he's seeing x-rays. But yeah, it could be repulsor rays. Oh, it could be. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's it, it's great fun. I'm I, I I'm recollecting now in uh, Son of Frankenstein when when the son realizes my father had actually stumbled. He thought it was electricity, but he stumbled upon cosmic rays, which gave oh. the monster life. Uh, and uh, it's the same kind of thing. It's just, well, uh, we need to invent some extra uh, vibrations of light. So he invented these extra two rays. And, uh, of course, he didn't know he didn't have his quantum mechanics and know that light is also particles as opposed to rays. But so maybe 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 those extra vibrations are different particles. I don't know, but it, it, it's interesting. Yeah, he's tra- he's inventing a new science. And uh, um, um, I don't know. He may have it right. <laughs> he did the best right. he could with the science at the time. You yeah. got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I also like that on Mars they have a telescope that's looking at Earth. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and that they can actually the sit grass. in a theater and watch and watch uh, programs and presentations of what we're doing here. Uh, yeah, I think that's pretty funny. I mean, uh, the the whole the whole planet of Mars is is basically as I guess Wells as well. Is they're working with the Percival Lowell uh, maps of maps of Mars, which which ha- which show canals, right? Right. And right. this is this is the first, uh, I guess. It's maybe I, th- I think Gulliver Jones was before this, but basically this is the first uh, story in which Mars becomes a uh, dying civilization, uh, uh-huh. as opposed to uh, that we see, right? Yes. So the yes. the the Martians from War of the Worlds are coming to Earth because. They've they've used up their planet or whatever. Uh, well, here we see that planet that there that has been used up, and since then, you know, we've seen Bradbury's uh, Mars in the Martian Chronicles, and mm-hmm. a million other uh, you know science fiction authors who have who've take you know even Philip K. Dick has taken stories set on Mars and with you know Martians who are you know. Uh, the leftovers of a great civilization sort of reduced to barbarism or, 
some sort of esoteric uh, uh, metaphysical spiritualism. <laughs> um, yeah. But this is where it begins. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I, I mean, Wells had the notion that we could in, be invaded from Mars, but for somebody, for the first time, to actually say, let's put a whole story on Mars and go from there. I, I, yeah, I've, Ed may have been one of the first guy to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and telepathy plays a big part, too, well. doesn't it? To, Absolutely. Yeah, the, and that's an interesting um, thing, because this is way earlier than uh, John W. Campbell. Yep. Um, but yeah, hmm. but it's very prevalent here. Yes, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of plays a role also with the, uh, I, I think there's some sort of inconsistency in in the way it's talked about, but telepathy and lying, you know, you, you can't have lying if you have telepathy. And, uh. and, and uh, in the first novel here, in A Princess of Mars, uh, g- our main character, John Carter, is able to lie because nobody can read his mind. Yes. But he he doesn't lie just for fun. He lies only to save somebody's uh, save somebody's sense of honor or something like that. He he lies for honorable reasons. That's right. That's but, right. He he's yeah. not a Machiavelli. He doesn't then, do that. And then everybody else on the planet is basically genu- genu- generally honest, right? Because yes. either they have to be or because uh, because that's just the proper sort of behavior. Right. Um, Except I was thinking that uh, the who's the 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 guy from Helium, um, uh, Kantos Can. Kantos right? Can, yes. He can lie because he he signs up as uh, you know uh, he signs up in the enemy navy looking for. That's right. Danger. That's right. So yeah, well, there's this honor, but uh, obviously, as you say, uh, the the consistency isn't in this. Uh, they're very straightforward, honest people, and right. thievery is unknown there. That's right. But assassination takes its place. Well, there's a certain amount of deceit in assassination, so I would assume, well, uh, I would assume there's telepathy, but as Carter is able to block people from reading his mind, and he never talked about other Martians being able to block each other's thoughts. He left that one way, he, he kind of left that 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 sentence incomplete, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, when you stop and think, actually, all the villains are deceitful on this. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to give it away, but go into the gods of Mars, and you'll learn the meaning of deceit with a capital D. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, generally, anybody who's an evil Jed or Jedak is completely uh, able to to lie and, and steal and uh, and cover up. So yeah, the telepathy is an interesting notion because yes, you would think everybody would have to be honest, but uh, uh, he 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 was very cavalier with his his conceits. He would use them and then throw them aside the yeah. second he didn't need them. It, it, in a way, uh, I was thinking, you know, you're mentioning Idaho uh, as one of his bases, but I was thinking this before that, actually. I was thinking um, the the way that John Carter gets to Mars, is it's pretty strange. I mean, uh, yeah. there are no rocket ships, so okay, that's how he gets there. He gets yeah, there so. sort of an astral projection sort of thing um, mm-hmm. with his body in suspended animation. When he comes back, all his clothing is stiff and and about to break apart from old age right yeah um so i was thinking like it's this kind of reminds me of the of the mormon idea of after death right you go to a planet and you are the god of that planet and everybody (laughs) everybody there uh 
is is sort of under your rule, but it's also an idealized version of 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 uh, a good life, right? So uh-huh. he's got the girl, he's got he's got the army that he can lead, and he's got the 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 happy dog. Every everything sort of the idealized friendship, you know. It's like the perfect place, and then he has to. Oh, damn! He has to come back to Earth. Yes, he. Uh, yes, he. Uh, quote. It's a. It's an interesting metaphysical thing for him, and uh, uh, he. And I don't think it was religious or anything. I think it was strictly just a great way to get the guy onto Mars. I mean, and, and he didn't can't tell the story if he doesn't come back and tell the story, right? Because we didn't have space travel. Certainly, the notions of astral projection, if they may not have called it that in in the day, but you had spiritualism, you had uh, people, you had Houdini trying to talk to the dead, so there was a notion of spirit versus body, and uh, he actually plays with that notion quite a bit in some of his later works. Uh, I happen to be in Thuvia right now in in the chapter where one of his most intriguing philosophical things comes up in that, Uh, so that's just a little, later on in Thuvia he goes into the the body mind separation integration um he uh he often skirts religion he talks about the 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 break between the body and the soul and of course in christianity you have the the the, the thought was made flesh and the flesh mm-hmm. was was thought so um i think he was a deeply religious man but he hated religion if you know what I'm talking about, there, there was a, he had a very profound respect for some spirit of benevolence in the universe, um, but uh, it, the yeah, being able to separate the soul from the body uh, that is one of the conceits he played with. I don't think it was original with him, but he actually took it and ran with it quite a bit. And once he found, it's kind of me like with that Burroughs guy in some of my tropes. Once he found a formula that worked, he just, uh, he brings Ulysses Paxton over for Mastermind of Mars, and and then eventually Carter is able to uh, go across the void at will. Right. But it, it's interesting, yeah, that you have a body like uh, in suspended animation for 10 years in an Arizona cave, and, and ten years later, the soul comes back to inhabit that body. So. Yeah, I, I can see the I can see the one way trip. You know that that you know that's just we don't know what happens after death. And um, I mean, it, it is intrigue. Like it's if you if you are going through the story and then you sort of forgot. Oh yeah, he his dead body's lying in that cave, and then yeah. no, he comes back. Right? Yeah, and, and yeah, the yeah, body's yes. not dead. And then there's the the Indi- the old Indian woman in the cave. Uh, the mummified corpse of an old uh-huh. woman, and it's like, okay, was she dead before he? Uh, I assume we're supposed to think she she was was she a dead before? She, do we find out later what was going on in that cave? No, we never know exactly what was happening. We know that there was something behind him, and there was something making scary noises behind him. But because he was paralyzed, he couldn't roll over and look at it until ten years later, when he comes back, and then he just sees bones. And I think there's. There's some the old skeletons. woman is, benef- is is mummified, and there's some skeletons hanging there. So I don't. Uh, I I I get a feeling that she was dead from day one back there, and there was some. It was some kind of totem that scared the Apaches away. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, no, the, uh, that's one of those things that Ed would do. He would just 
sketch it out just enough for his purposes, and he didn't need to go any deeper and explain it more, so he didn't. He was being very painterly in that. He, there was something scary that made the Apaches run away, and then 10 years later we roll over and say, oh, it's a mummified old medicine woman and some, some bad uh, juju back there in the huh. bones hanging there. He, he he was paralyzed by the the mummy's curse, right? Yeah, and then uh, and then I guess when he he decided to astrally or because he was in that coma or whatever, he, he astrally projected back to his body and everything's okay again. And his body hasn't been you know rotting or anything. Well, no. whatever. Well, that's you okay. know, you got that's that's a well. Actually, I I think Bram Stoker wrote before this, and I don't know if Burroughs was familiar with Stoker, but of course you had the notion of the undead there, sure, of of the bodies that that wouldn't decay. So uh, yeah, it, that's a Lovecraft as well. Yeah, uh, and and then interesting that he has to uh, into the second time after he quote unquote dies the second time and at which time the book the first book starts and he talks about the body is entombed on the Hudson in a in a in a in a, in a tomb that has air and that mm-hmm. can be opened from the inside so uh, the, the that that conceit continues that the body will not corrupt while the soul is out yeah hmm. it's a uh... And then I think I think we're we're supposed to get the impression that at the end of the first book, uh, he's about to project again, right? Right. And right. and and then he's going to be in that cave, I guess, because his son, his nephew uh, was that normal Dean, his nephew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, whoever the author of the book is is Mr. Carter's nephew. Yeah, right. That's the conceit we have here. So Mr. Carter's nephew is is going to be. Uh, I guess it's Edgar Rice Burroughs. In, no, because in he, he in the first right. one he signs it, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Yeah, okay. The second book he goes ERB. So right. ERB, and he did this often. He would uh, he would say, "I'm Edgar Rice Burroughs, and my uncle John Carter told me this story." Right. right. Or my favorite opening for Tarzan of the Apes is, "I had this story from one who had no business to tell it to me or to any other." So he loves setting himself up as I'm Edgar Rice Burroughs. It, yeah. and I have this great story to tell you. And my uncle is John Carter. Yeah, it, it's a story within a, a framing story, and then there's the uh, the uh, when he's signing books, he's probably doing the same thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then there was a, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So, uh, you guys have any uh, thoughts that haven't been sprouted? No, I was. Uh, uh, I just wanted to say it. You know, this is a reread for me, you know, as I said before, and I'm really pleased at how it held up. I mean, there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, th- high-rolling moments where, you know, the, you know, I am so incredibly awesome and uh, I must protect this woman type stuff going on. But uh, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the language and I enjoyed the story. I, found, I thought it was very entertaining. It's very, I think that's the word for it. It's, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a fun book. I, I didn't come away... From it, thinking, oh boy, those are deep thoughts. He's thinking, it's, it's no, it's this is really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's Almost like a Buck know, Rogers uh, serial. Uh, exactly, or yeah. or the old flat. The, it the was flash serialized Gordon. originally. Yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, I don't well, know. All if these books are serialized, oh, yeah. right? Uh, they were. Serialized in pulps, right? And they were done in like uh, chunks, I believe, of about six chapters each mm-hmm. is where the uh, is where the breakpoints were. Um, yeah, and the whole no- the whole publishing notion was serializing it and keeping people coming back for more. So you can see him writing his cliffhangers into it, and uh, it pretty much was his formula. Uh, 
almost all the way through the end. He would write first for publication in the pulps, and then after that, then he would publish the book. But uh, it was it was uh, it was popcorn. It was uh, keep him coming back for more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> somehow, somehow that makes it more fun. Like he has to keep uh, the interest up. Yeah. Between each uh, piece. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you don't get exactly a cliffhanger at every chapter, but uh, it would be interesting. I uh, We were talking about this, Jesse, and I would love to see the old stories and see how they actually oh, yeah. broke apart and and uh, see where he left the cliffhangers. But there are some obvious ones there, and then there are some chapter endings that are obviously not cliffhangers. But mm. what's, what's fascinating to me is this first trilogy, uh, each of the first two books ends as a cliffhanger. It's just oh. like wanting for more. So book one ends but it's not really complete. Now, I'll, I'll, uh, spoiler, uh, Gods of Mars definitely ends as a cliffhanger. And uh, it takes until the end of Warlord of Mars for that first trilogy really to end. And then we have a big shift because when he goes from book three into book four, we shift from first into third person. And from then on, from Thuvia on, the books are written in third person. Hmm. And doesn't John Carter become a, a sort of a background figure in some of them in some of them in a couple of them he becomes the protagonist again but um certainly in thuvia and chessmen we focus on um in thuvia we focus on thuvia and carthoris in chessmen we uh, go to his daughter terra of helium and then some of the others, we go outside the Carter family. In Mastermind, we have Ulysses Paxton. Fighting Man, we have actually a, na- uh, a native-born Martian is the protagonist there. And we don't get Carter coming back until Swords of Mars. And then I think Swords, Synthetic Men, and um, Yana of Gathol. No, Yana, yeah, yeah, uh, we have John Carter in those last three. I I just thinking about the synthetic the idea of synthetic men, but it also reminds me that um, that Deja Thoris is is laid an egg and he's <laughs> got yes. an incubator and, and yes. his he's got an image at the end of a Princess of Mars of his son or somebody like we assume his son and and uh, Deja Thoris looking up at at Earth and wondering when yes. he's ever going to come back. <laughs> yes, yes. After the egg is hatched. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're they're the same as we are, except they're oviparous. Oh, my. (laughs) So there's some obvious questions to ask about uh, about procreation that we will leave untouched. Yeah, (laughs) it's sort of... uh it's, I guess he lets, he lets uh, nine years or eight and ten years pass between mm-hmm. the beginning of the novel and then there's a, a scene near the end that says, and for ten years, John Carter, blah, blah, blah. Yes, yes, I, yes. I, in the last, blah, blah, yes. In the yeah. last chapter, we, we, we've, uh, we uh, telescope to ten years and uh, then we go to the atmosphere plant again. Mm-hmm. Cool. There's probably stories to be told in that little... Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, ten-year gap too. Oh yeah, <laughs> he mentions you know what he's leading armies and all the. Oh yes, and and yes, and uh, he he he's doing all the uh, John Carterly things he does, and uh, and uh, th- it would be some a fertile area for some fan fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I wanted to do this book before the, the movie from uh, Disney comes out. And uh, so I would, I would know, have have some idea as to what was wrong with the movie, or what was right with the movie, <laughs> or what was I, right with it. Yeah, yeah let's hope before, that they do it right. Because uh, I think that you know it, it, it could, 
it could affect my view of the book. And sure. Um, but uh, I also I I started watching the the really terrible. Um, uh, what's I can't can't even remember the name of it, but it's called The Princess of Mars. Oh uh, God, uh, the one with uh, with um, it's what's her name? The no budget, straight to DVD. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, what's wrong with it is not the story. The story is exactly like it is in the book. What's wrong with it is the acting and the and the uh, and the special effects and, and the, the special camera. Uh, you know, just the, just little things, just, just little the, things. Like everything is wrong. Yeah. Except it's got the story. He's, he's naked, uh, hmm. and if you watch the trailer for the the new movie, uh, he's he's wearing his clothes when he gets to Mars. And I was thinking, oh, that's yeah, why did they know. do that? There's no hmm. reason. To, oh, except it's a Disney movie. Forgot it's it. It's a Disney okay. movie, right? Right. And so uh, we're not going to see Deja Thoris uh, nude. We're not going to see anybody nude on that planet. Oh. Right? Ah, I, darn it! Well, I just think you know Tarzan in the vest. But does that work for you? <laughs> it's not working for me for some reason. Uh, oh, only in chapter one of Return of Tarzan. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say. I, I recall that uh, he was kind of at the beginning of the second Tarzan book. Um, I, I remember that scene for some reason. He was with a bunch of other guys who kind of bet him that he could go into the. Uh, jungle and come back with something didn't they uh, uh, that it was, uh he he was uh actually uh, it's a it's a lot deeper than that he's, okay. he's uh tricked into going back into the jungle by right. an evil russian ah an evil russian an evil russian in cahoots with a french countess <laughs> well, you know how they do are we have uh, do we have that to look forward to after you get through these six books on your podcast it is possible it's mm-hmm. possible i'll be very frank i was originally going to start with tarzan mm-hmm. but uh, when i went back to reread them tarzan was very much a product of its time and its culture and set on the planet earth there are political incorrectnesses of the highest order Mm -hmm. in it Uh, we're talking about sentences like he was a splendid specimen of the white race in juxtaposition Mm -hmm. to the savage black men around him Hmm. Um, oh my yeah yeah and uh, this is mild compared to some of the later there is a black serving lady named esmeralda in the first book who makes mammy in gone with the wind look liberated (laughs) oh wow so i kind of backed off of tarzan uh although i have done my homework and the first book has is some of the most objectionable stuff but it's still difficult and uh feelings are still very high that there are certain things that may not be said or should not be said, even though they did happen in the past. So I'm a little leery about doing the oh, cards. Go for it. Go for but it. eventually, <laughs> when I run out of other PD stuff to do, uh, uh, it's fun stuff too. And uh, sure. as I said, uh, Tarzan of the Apes is one of the greats, and they've never done a film that did it justice. I, mm-hmm. I quite like Greystoke myself. I, I, it was I close. I don't. I, I know it's not the book, but. Uh, I think it's a good movie. They 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 got a lot right in that one, but I'm still waiting. And Ed waited his whole life for someone to actually take Tarzan of the Apes and do it right. Uh, he uh, his stories with the uh, fights with the studios are uh, are legendary because he was never really happy with what they did with his work. It's kind of surprising that that uh, Princess of Mars never got 
not, uh, movie until recently. Well, that one, as you as you yourself said, that one requires very much some special effects and uh, so stuff that just hasn't been possible until CG. I mean, some of those massive battle scenes with the huge fleets and the well, huge they were good armies. at those. But, you know, like Ben yeah. Hur. But good, uh, but yeah, but the ability for John Carter to jump around like an uh, like a grasshopper against six armed guys. I mean, Harryhausen and stop action is probably not going to work for that. And and the sword play and the fighting are key to this. Uh, if if you don't get some excitement from some of the fighting, uh, I think you've missed a big bet there. All the beasts, I guess, as well. And the beasts, the ten legged thoats and Wula. Uh, yeah, some of this stuff just—it's uh, hard to imagine it being done with prosthetics or, uh, or uh, God forbid, a Howard the Duck duck suit for some of that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the lost civilization it, uh, for me, I, I just think of, of of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and how successful Jackson was in creating that sense of dead civilizations. It was very expensive and uh, a lot of work to create that world that those movies happened in. And uh, Burroughs, at least the Mars series, requires that just as much as the Tolkien does. Uh, have you seen the uh, Dynamite Entertainment? Well, I think I asked you this last time we talked. Uh, uh, Warlord of Mars series, the uh, comics? No, I haven't. You've talked to talk to me, and I've looked at some of the covers, but no, I, I haven't actually seen the comics. I, I sent Scott. Scott, I sent you that cover done mm-hmm. done to look like uh, who's it? Um, the Rockwell. Yeah, the Rockwell. Yeah, cover. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I love that. Uh, I love that. It's a great. It's a great cover. Now, the in, interior art is not. You know, it's not like that. But the the covers alone are worth looking at, and and the series is. Uh, I, I believe they've just wrapped up. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure because I've only got the first issue, but and I've been following it. I'm thinking of getting a trade paperback of uh, the Warlord of Mars is basically a serialization of all the novels, as far as I know. Um, and I think they've just wrapped up uh, Princess of Mars, and they do a little bit like of adding things in, um, moving things around a little bit, so we get a like a preview in the first issue. We get a preview of what's happening on Mars before John Carter gets there. Ah. Um, Interesting, yeah. and I guess that's to just—it's sh- not an adaptation of the movie, right? It's not like they've got the script. What they're, they're just doing their own version. But there was there was a previous one, a Marvel series that I, I never got a chance to read. Anybody read that? No, mm-hmm. no, no, nope. didn't see it. Okay, I, I, I like—I think comics might be the the best way to adapt uh, this series because of the- certainly, yeah, very certainly until until we had the technology and films. Uh, the only way to do it would be with animation. I think Frazetta did some amazing work with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and but even so, like in a movie, you've got two hours or so to to tell the novel. I don't think this is an eight-hour novel, um, and no. I don't think you can put a good chunk of that story in very well. I think it's going to be a lot of it just passed over. We're, sure, we're going to get one scene with uh, you know Thoats, and we're going to get one scene in the. Uh, atmosphere factory and we're gonna you know it's sort of mm-hmm. a compressed version of what is a sort of a, a an episodic adventure that i think probably would work better as a comic hbo mm-hmm. needs to do a series of it mm-hmm. uh, well i wouldn't be averse to that i think that'd be a good idea yeah they already well, do nudity so yeah 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 
got to get a bunch of nude, uh, nude four-legged uh, actors in there, four-armed actors in there. <laughs> I was they, thinking that I was thinking it might be interesting to try to adapt it for the stage. Uh, wow. Uh, I, yeah, but then I'm thinking, well, how would you do it? Well, for the uh, for the Tharks, uh, just have a guy on another guy's shoulders. Yeah. Hey, hey, we got six arms now. We can do that. Yeah. But. Uh, they can make it a musical. That would be big. There you go, <laughs> with lots of aerial acrobatics and stuff. Oh, no, that's Spider-Man. <laughs> well, it would have to have a at least a high ceiling for all this yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it could be a ballet. It might work better as a ballet. Ah, the, the uh, Princess of Mars Ballet. Why not? If you can make a ballet out of Spartacus, you can make a ballet out of this. I think you could. Is there a ballet of Spartacus? Yes, Kachaturian. Oh, I didn't know that. Kachaturian wrote it. So wow. There's some ravishingly beautiful music in that. Uh, speaking of beautiful music, I noticed uh, you used uh, Gustav Holtz's uh, Mars uh, Air of War for the intros to the podcast. Yes, yes. That that kind of was a no-brainer to me. Yeah. And, and uh, actually, I do those myself on a desktop. That's not anybody else's ah. recording. Uh, that's all synthetic from uh, the full score, and it all goes through synthesizers, and it comes out here. I I, I recognize that one, but I I think your outro music is not something I recognize. No, that's out of Lace Preludes, which uh, actually I fell in love with that because they used that portions of it in the original Flash Gordon movies. Uh-huh. Okay. So uh, when I find years later discovered that Franz Liszt actually had written some of those licks, uh, that became one of my favorite pieces of music. So that that's something I just had on tap. So I figured, well, I'll use that. It's sort of a uh, dreamy. Yes, yes. It, it's it's like, and now I I bid bid you a good night. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> good stuff. Really? I didn't know you generate that music. That that's impressive. Thank you. Yeah. No, well, the, the fact that you don't know, then that, that's, that's, that's the best compliment I can hear. I just assumed that you got a copy of a free music somewhere. Uh, no, I figure, yeah, symphony orchestras are, are expensive, even the, <laughs> even the cheap ones, especially when I can do that on a computer and uh, have the rights to it. Yep. Everything's, everything's yours this way, right? That's correct. That's the idea. So I don't want to have to pay royalties to nobody. So uh, prior to um, prior to uh, doing audiobooks, uh, would you say uh, now after having done them, would you say that? Because I've heard this from uh, I think there was an interview recently that I'll post up uh, with. Um, oh Scott, who was that uh, narrator? Scott Brick. No, uh, Scott. Yeah, Wake I'm listening. Scott. Who is the narrator? Who's the for narrator? Oh, Scott. We just did with Blackstone uh, interview. Oh, Grover Gardner. The Grover Gardner interviewed. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Oh, uh, Bronson Pinchot. Bronson Pinchot. Bronson oh. Pinchot uh, is doing audiobooks now. And he's really good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was talking about that in there. You know, audiobooks is you're all the characters. You know, you're not just one character. So you're. It's like a more liberating acting experience. Did you find that that? That was the case as well. I, I absolutely. It's very exhilarating to be able to do the whole play and do all the voices. Uh, for a control freak, it's it's uh, it's heaven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a little daunting sometimes, and you, there's a lot of homework you have to do to do it correctly. I mean, mm-hmm. you got to keep track of whose voice has what. Uh, what I do is uh, every time I create a new character who's going to have to come back. Um, 
I mean, there are some characters who are just in one scene, uh, you know, I call them the throwaway characters, so I don't worry too much about those. But anybody who's going to come back, as soon as I first do my take on them, I copy that off to a separate fo- reference file. So every time I go back, I can listen to it and see, oh, that's who, how that person sounds. So you've uh, read through the whole time, the whole book first, l- marked all the characters, and then, and then played with it, or do you do it chapter by chapter? Pretty much... Uh, uh, some of the major characters, I'll spend a little bit more time and think, well, okay, this guy's going to be uh, across three books, so that one's pretty crucial. So I, I spend a little bit of prep time figuring out who my model for that is and what the characteristics are. Um, the shorter they show up in the books, the shorter my attention goes to them. So a lot of them are uh, shoot-from-the-hip decisions in the recording studio. Uh, now, let me ask you this. Is the model for John Carter David Stifle? <laughs> no. 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 I no. thought that was like if I was in this book, I'd be John Carter. Started out <laughs> that way, but there is there is a model I'm using, and it's a deep dark secret because uh, um, David Stifle is a little bit of a wimp compared to John Carter. Sure. <laughs> so well, I think uh, we're all wimps compared to John Carter. As compared to the, the warlord of Barsoom, for Pete's sake. Right. No, I will have to say that maybe in the first couple of episodes it was David Stifle, but uh, the model for him got very sharp and clear into focus about two or three chapters into the first podcast. And uh, that one is a deep, dark secret. Okay. Al Pacino. <laughs> oh, it's Robert De Niro. It's Robert De Niro. <laughs> you looking at me? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm watching God. I'm re. I'm actually watching The Godfather again. So he's pretty strong in my on my memory right now. Now I don't know how I'm gonna fit. Yeah, I don't know where I'm gonna fit him in. Maybe I will. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, cool. well, at least you're gonna reveal uh, the source for Dejah Thoris. Who's Dejah Thoris? Oh, Green God. Star. <laughs> that may be closer to David Stivel. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that one. There's not a clear female uh, that I'm that I'm shooting for, except uh, there's there's some idealized female there. I I was a little um, I was a little surprised at how little screen time she gets in the book. Um, I mean, she the book is called The Princess of Mars. Hmm. Um. But. Uh, she's she's in there, but she's she's like she's sort of not uh, running the show. And I guess I, I just assumed that she was a more more uh, prominent character. Does she get more screen time in later books? Absolutely not. Actually, less, much really? less. We see a lot less of her in uh, two and three. She's the she's the MacGuffin. She yeah, is the the reason that the story exists. But uh, and interestingly enough, in Princess of Mars, she is one of the better drawn Burroughs heroines. Uh, Jane Porter in in Tarzan, yeah, I'd say she's about uh, neck and neck with with Dejah Thoris in terms of of fully developed characters. But his female characters tend. As well, was I think Sola the time. got better, better, better screen time. Than- yes, Sola got better screen time. She's and, a good and character, was, actually, and was more fleshed out. Yeah, later you're going to discover the of the female characters he gave the most time to was Thuvia. Huh. Well, yeah, she gets the the she even gets her name in the in the title. Yeah, she get, and uh, and in that book you get more of Thuvia in Thuvia than you get of Dejah Thoris in Princess. Hmm. So it 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 is interesting, but. Uh, in in a 
male-dominated society, which 1911 was, and the world that Ed came from, uh, the women were the objects. I mean, they were the they were the goals. They they weren't actors in the drama. They were the rewards. But uh, some of the scenes with Deja, where he's talking to her and he learns about Mars from her and uh, customs and all that, he did spend some more time with her than on a lot of his females. Yeah, I th- I think you know where you were saying the the. Uh Burroughs tends to create um, little bits that, and then discard them. So, like, yeah, uh, there, there's one that obviously just extends the the the, the story longer, which is uh, you can't kill my husband, you can't kill my betrothed because then I can't marry you. It's like, yes. just some arbitrary <laughs> rule that, oh well, you know. Yes, this is the custom, and Just now the we standard have, custom. Yeah, yeah, yeah and it, it's an obstacle, and we have to get around that. Uh, Generally, that's the opposite on Earth, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the only way to <clears throat> get that woman to marry you is to kill her husband. Is to kill kill the competition, right? That's right. right. So it's interesting how he uh, invents his his obstacles and barriers, and he invents obstacles and barriers as readily as he invents ways out of solution, out of out of traps. Yeah, I noticed that exact spot too, Jesse. That was interesting because then he had to fight the guy and he was like, I better not kill him. <laughs> yeah. So it was harder for him because he, he couldn't kill the guy. <laughs> yeah, he has to just maim him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've read that uh, S.M. Sterling's version of this called uh, In the Course of the Crimson Kings has a more uh, powerful princess character. Oh, I, I, should, I think that'd be a good read. I, I hear it's good. Yeah, David, I don't know if you've read that or not. I'm not familiar with that, no. Okay. Yeah, I think it's a re- basically a retelling of Princess of Mars. Huh. Okay. Okay. But hmm. I, I that, The name it. of that, again, is? In the Courts of the Crimson Kings. In the Courts. And who's the author on that? S.M. Sterling. S.M. Sterling. Okay. Yeah. I'd, I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah, he wrote one Mars book, then he wrote a Venus book. And they're in the ah. style of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Didn't cool. Burroughs do some Venus as well? Yes, he did. He did four of them. Are they set in Four, the same five. world universe as... Uh... Well, they're in the same universe, actually. Uh, the guy winds up on Venus. He thought he was shooting for, for Barsoom. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, he did a wrong way Peter Peach fuzz and winds up on Venus instead, which is a very different world. It's not dying. It's much lusher. It's got forests. And, uh, and uh, that, that's, a, that's an airborne sky kind of world. I think I think I got a new book to read. You guys have a different name, like Barsoom. Uh, yeah, didn't all, they're all all the planets have assume or something or right. bar something? Uh, well, right? uh, in the Mars world, uh, there's Barsoom for Mars. There's Jasum for Earth, and uh, I, I think there are a couple of others. And I don't act. Uh, I know he goes to Saturn at one point, and I don't remember what they called that. But in the Venus series, it's a different vocabulary. And Venus, uh, Venus is called Amtor. Mm. I think the again with that telescope when when John Carter asks uh, Deja Thoris he says uh, aren't you surprised to see uh, uh, that we have we we look similar you know that we have forearms and you know you're hum- I'm I look like a human and I, I noticed also that the the uh, four the four legged green green skinned men they they call themselves men as well right? yes 
Yes, Everybody's and, and, human, right? Yes, every and and Burroughs goes along with that. They're all men, or right. are part of mankind. Right. Yeah. yeah. How are they both regular humans and green four armed creatures at the same time? <laughs> They're not regular humans. Explain? They lay eggs, so okay. they look. But they, but they look human, right? Except for the red skin. Yeah. Can you guys still hear me? I just yep. got a microphone. Okay. Cool. I just got a microphone alert on my Skype, so I just want to be sure I'm still online. You're online. Cool. I was banging something like crazy, so I'm beating myself. As much I as think I he explains. He explains it, saying that the princess is. Uh, the princess says, "Oh, uh, every planet has humans on it." I think she says yes. something like that. So, oh, well, that explains it. <laughs> yes, actually, I think when they do go to Saturn, I don't know if they go to Saturn or or one of the moons, but I think they find uh, humans there too, as I recall. Now, all the planets are occupied by people. Right, except Mercury, <laughs> or the very hot people there. Okay. The underground. The underground city on Mercury. Mm. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.